If you have a Bible with you or if you can find one in the pew rack in front of you. And if you are new with us today and don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that one home with you as our gift to you. John chapter 20, find us on page 906 if you are using a pew Bible. We're going to read just two short verses, verses 19 and 20 of this chapter. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, your gospels record a time when many were gathered, so many that there was no room, not even at the door, and Jesus was preaching the word, and they came bringing a paralytic carried by four of them, and they couldn't get near to him because of the crowd, and so they dug a hole in the roof and lowered them through to see Jesus. Now, Father, we, uh, <laughs> we don't plan to dig a hole in the roof, um, But we want that same desire to see Jesus. And would we this morning, standing in our midst, showing us his hands and his side, we pray in his perfect name. Amen. So one of the uh, most surprising moments in in my life came a couple of years ago on my 30th birthday. Now, if you've been around for us a while, you may remember this story. If you're new with us, you might be surprised I've had a 30th birthday. This this guy looks like he's 12. Has he had a 30th birthday? Yeah, Yeah, I had a 30th birthday. Um, And it was probably the most surprising day of my life because I wasn't physically feeling great that day. I was just a little under the weather and I'd been really just quite stressed with some things that were going on in my week. And I was laying on the couch and to be honest, I was also just probably feeling a little bit sorry for myself. And the iPad lights up, and it's FaceTime, and it's my mum back in Scotland. And uh, she lives in Scotland, where I'm from originally, and we, we FaceTime pretty regularly. Nothing particularly unusual about that. When I answer, though, I'm a little confused, because I can see that she's, she's outside, and it's all dark around her. And knowing the time change between here and there, I say to her mum, it's, it's like, it must be 11, 12 o'clock at night. What, what, what are you doing wandering around FaceTiming me in Scotland? As soon as I say that, suddenly... Here in the noise in the basement, and on the iPad appears beside my mum, my daughter. <laughs> and I was really confused. You know, when you're really confused, you just don't think straight. I was thinking, how did my daughter get to Scotland? <laughs> you know, we ate dinner together, right? <laughs> and then I hear a noise up the stairs, and there appears my mum. And I'm looking at her on FaceTime, and I'm looking at her in the flesh, and I'm kind of like, made confusion. And then the doorbell rings, and I'm kind of just like, uh, and I kind of stagger to the door. And I open the door, and there's my sister with her new baby, okay? And listen, it is exceedingly rare for me to be speechless, okay? You know, I'm... You know, but for better or for worse, you're a preacher, and I'm not normally lost for words. But I just stood there, kind of like, you know? It was such a confusing and glorious moment. And suddenly, the room was filled with joy. Why? Because their presence changed everything. 
Their presence changed everything. Come with me and let's be a fly on the wall of the locked room that we encounter here in John chapter 20. It's Sunday evening, the sun is going down and the hearts and hopes of Christ's disciples are going down with it. Huddled in the shadows of this room, ten have gathered. We know Judas and Thomas are missing, but there's another empty chair at this table. Jesus, their leader, Jesus, their friend, has been seized, crucified, and buried. He is dead, he is buried, he is gone. Those eyes of compassion that used to look out on the crowds, the poor, the sick, the suffering. That uh, tender yet authoritative voice, powerful enough to uh, calm the waves and cast out demons, yet gentle enough that we children would come running. Those calloused hands that had embraced lepers and given sight to the blind. Never to be seen again in this world. The atmosphere in this room speaks of absence. The room itself feels empty. As we look into the disciples' eyes here in this chapter, we see two emotions that that stand out above the rest. First of all, we see fear. The disciples are afraid, we read in verse 19. Why? Because their enemies are on the warpath. And their enemies have tasted blood, even Jesus' blood. And so the disciples have every reason to believe that they're the ones that will be next. That their master's suffering will be the prelude to their own suffering. And so their only hope is this. Isn't this a a feeble gesture? They, They lock the door. As if that's going to keep the bloodthirsty crowd out. They're like a a wee girl who closes her eyes and just hopes that the trouble will stay out there. But along with fear, as we look into their eyes, do we not also see guilt? Guilt that no locked door could ever keep out. The events of the weekend have have guaranteed it. For three years they have followed Jesus and they've been challenging years, yes, but they've been wonderful years. Each day filled with happy and amazing memories. Peter remembers the day he first met Jesus when he was called to follow him and he upped and left his boat, nets and all, running after Jesus, somehow knowing that it was the most meaningful thing he would ever do with his life. Matthew remembers teaching after teaching, miracle after miracle. John remembers his beloved friend. The rest remember how when Jesus prayed, it seemed like he was one with God, and how when they were able to be with him, they themselves felt alive. But then Holy Week arrived, and this weekend arrived and that moment arrived when their leader when their friend needed them most and they had proved what cowards cowards just a few days before they had all vowed that they would have Jesus's back even unto death Matthew 26 verse 35 Peter says even if I must die with you I will not deny you and all the disciples said the same A few verses later, from verse 35 to verse 56, we now read, All the disciples left him and fled. Deserters, traitors, cowards. Not one of them can hold their head up high. Memories and dreams collapsed and shattered. Guilt 
and shame over what they have done. But there, in this room, amidst the fear and and the guilt, do some of us not see our own stories in miniature? Do some of us not see our own stories in miniatures? As we step out of that room and back into this room, it's easy for us to relate. Now, the doors of this room are not locked. That would be weird, okay? You've not arrived at some crazy cult. The doors of this room are not locked, but we find the same emotions here. In many of us, we find fear. I I wonder what it is that you're afraid of. And I don't so much mean the simple things, you know, snakes, spiders, heights. Simple because generally you can avoid them here in Metro DC, okay? I I mean the deeper things. Afraid of just not being enough, pretty enough, smart enough, having what it takes. Afraid perhaps of, of losing security, your job, your home, your reputation, failing somehow. Afraid perhaps of your relationships, of loneliness, of making that marriage work, of being able to raise those kids right. Afraid of those things that we can't control. Your health, your mental health, the fact that as much as we like to push it off to one side, you and I are both going to die. We all lock doors. And I wonder this morning what it is that you're trying to keep out. But along with fear in this room, we also see, like with the disciples, a sense of guilt. For many of us, it's inescapable. And I wonder for you what it is. What is that memory that haunts you perhaps from your youth, from a time you should have known better, perhaps from this week or even last night? I wonder what is your your biggest regret, that thing that you just really don't want to talk about, that person that you really let down, that thing perhaps that you hope no one will ever find out about you. Or perhaps your guilt is something a bit more mundane, the gnawing feeling that you have nothing to offer, the sense that your life hasn't amounted to much, years, decades of mediocrity or failure. See, in the locked room of John 20, the disciples were confronted with reality and they experienced that dark night of the soul when we see our own fear and guilt. And if we are at all self-aware in this room, it's easy for many of us to relate. But let's step back in then to the locked room of John 20, a room that we belong in. But as we appear now in verse 20, suddenly everything has changed. Everything is different. The shift's a little jarring, but something incredibly positive seems to have happened. Now we see faces shining, lit with the light of triumph. We hear voices throbbing with excitement and wonderful discovery. We see back slapped with joy and victory. You and I kind of look at each other and wonder, you know, what's going on here? Are, are these the same men that we saw a verse ago? Is this the same Peter, the same Matthew, the same John, the same you know, of the rest? Is this the right room? Maybe we came up the wrong stairwell, I don't know. What, what is going on here? What's happened to explain this dramatic turnaround? And then we feel it. That the, the, the atmosphere no longer speaks of absence, but of 
presence. The presence. And then we see him. Jesus. Not on FaceTime, but standing in the midst of his disciples. You see what he's doing there? We read that he's standing, showing them his hands and his side. First of all, he's standing. Why is he standing? Because he's alive. (laughs) Because he's alive. Yes, he died, and yes, he was buried, but death could not handle him, and the grave could not hold him. He rose again, and now he stands, living forevermore. Why is he showing them his hands and his side? Why? Because we have the God who wants us to know him by his wounds. Who wants us to know him by his wounds, which are the proof of his love for us, received in taking the punishment that our sins deserve. A living saviour with wounds, standing with scars, speaks of a debt paid, of a work finished, of life even after death. What changed the room? One thing changed the room. The presence of Jesus. They thought he was dead, but Christ is alive. They thought he was buried, but now he has risen. That's what's changed. And with it, everything has changed. See here in verse 19 and 20. First of all, we see that their fear is turned to what? Gladness. Literally, we read that they rejoiced. And their guilt is turned to peace. The first words Jesus speaks then, peace be with you. He's saying, I haven't come to bring condemnation. Even in light of all that you've done this weekend, I haven't come to bring condemnation. I've come to bring benediction. I've come to bring blessing. On the cross I said, it is finished. Now I say, peace. What the cross achieved, I now give to you as a free gift of grace. The before and the after of this text is dramatic. And that's what happens when Jesus shows up. His presence changes everything. Now, as we step back out of that room and into this room, we remember that he didn't just show up then, right? He'd been showing up in rooms for 2,000 years. His presence didn't just make a difference then. His presence has been making a difference for 2,000 years. A great example of this came in the news this week. You may have read about Kara Tippett's. She's the young wife of a pastor in our own denomination, the PCA. She's a mother to four beautiful, rambunctious, little blonde-headed kids. And when you see the photos of their clan, you just can't help but smile. She hugs her husband from behind, staring directly at the camera with eyes as wide as her smile and beautiful long hair. She goes for a walk with her kids, kisses her five-year-old on the cheek, then scoops up their youngest and puts them on her shoulders as they make the journey home. Some of their family shots are great because there's a sense of like mischief and fun about them. You can imagine that the photographer had a really hard time getting them all to sit still enough in the same place in order to get just one picture. But then, about two and a half years ago, right after planting a church, in Colorado, and they discovered that Kara has breast cancer. 
And it's amazing how the photos change. She still holds her husband from behind, but that beautiful hair is gone. She still engages with those children, but it's not on a walk, it's, it, it's in her bed. They still take these family shots, but there's something a little muted about them now, like the photographer would have had an easier time getting them all to stay still. Despite aggressive treatment, the cancer spread throughout her body, and Kara chronicled this journey on a blog, a blog called Mundane Faithfulness. Have a look at it this afternoon. And it's interesting as you read that blog, because it kind of creates a, a tension in your soul, because on one hand, she really doesn't sugarcoat what this experience has been for, like for her as a follower of Jesus. She doesn't sugarcoat it in a way that's kind of forced or modeling, you know, like, oh, well, you know, I've cancelled but praise the Lord anyway, right? She really wrestles with it in a much more significant way. Uh, at one point, she compares herself to a wee girl whose dad is making her leave the party early. And she says, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to go. Another point, she writes, uh, well, she, she says in an interview with World Magazine, at the end of the day, my heart's desire is for more time and to be a mom longer. So I, can stay, so I can say in my mind that God is good, even if he takes me early. But in my heart, I scream, Lord, let me stay. So on one hand, she doesn't sugarcoat it, not forced, not modeling. But on the other hand, she doesn't despair. And she doesn't lose hope. Listen to one of the things she writes. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus. And he, Jesus, will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for. And that gratitude, that wondering at his love, will cover us. And it will carry us, carry us in ways we cannot comprehend. See, cancer for Kara Tippett wasn't just cancer because it was cancer with Jesus. She saw Jesus standing and she saw his wounds and it changed everything. Over the last few months, treatment stopped working and the inevitable decline ensued. And then just two weeks ago, two weeks ago from today, Kara Tippett died, aged 38. She wrote a letter to be posted on her blog after her death in which she writes, It seems impossible that this journey has finally come to an end. But I've done gone and flown away to the land of no more tears. Won't you rejoice with me? My pain is gone. My fears are calmed. I'm in the sovereignly good hands of Jesus. He is now my forever enough. She saw Jesus. She saw. And he turned her fear to joy and he turned her guilt to shame. Enabled her to live even enabled her to die well because that's what happens when Jesus shows up. His presence changes everything. And as we close, the question I have for us this morning is, okay, great for the disciples, great for Caratipids, what about you and I? Because we know that Jesus continues to show up. In fact, you know he's here in this very room this morning. And he's standing. Why is he standing? Because he's alive. 
He's alive now and forevermore. And he continues to show us his hands and his side. Why? Because he's still the God who wants to be known by his wounds, by the proof of the fact that he loves us, that he received the punishment our sins deserve. And if you have the eyes of faith this morning, doesn't he look glorious? Even his scars look glorious. We don't see them and and are sort of repulsed by the horror. We see them as as marks, proofs, guarantees of his love for us. And so to us, they make him look even more glorious. So we come this morning. We come and we say, (laughs) we say, yes, Jesus. Yes. You're standing because you're alive. And you're showing us your your wounds because you're our saviour. You're showing us that you're not here to condemn but to bless. That you're here to embrace and welcome those who know they need your help like us. You're here to turn our fear to joy and our guilt to peace. And so we can face this life and even face death because that's what happens in your presence, Jesus. Your presence changes everything. Believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have a living Savior who stands with scars, speaking of a debt paid, a work that is finished, and life even after death. Do you see him this morning? Let's pray. Father, you met those first disciples by sending your son to stand amongst them, showing his wounds. And you meet us also, 2,000 years later in this room, by sending your son to stand amongst us, showing his wounds. And so we know that joy has a name, peace has a name, Forgiveness has a name, grace has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he is risen. Enable us to see, we ask, in his matchless name. Amen.